In the Anglo-Saxon world, Nicholas J. Higgum and Martin J. Ryan, professors at the University of Manchester, opened their comprehensive history on the period by asking this question. Do the Anglo-Saxons still have relevance? Do they really matter? I'd like to posit that they do. Hello and welcome to the Anglo-Saxons in their own words. My name is Danny. When answering the question of whether the Anglo-Saxons still have relevance, a couple of thoughts quickly come to mind for me. Firstly, the world we live in today has been undeniably shaped by the lasting impacts, both positive and negative, of Britain and its empire. The language of that empire? English. The language of the Anglo-Saxons? Also English. Many of the peoples who today inhabit England, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States are descended from these ancient Germanic tribes. As a result, if you think about the Anglo-Saxons within the context of global history, between their offspring in Britain and the US, their impact on the world has been pretty colossal. Now, that's not to say that the genetic makeup of England and the US is entirely Anglo-Saxon, and that this genetic makeup can be attributed to these countries' successes. Far from it. However, it is interesting to think of the big impact that small people groups can have over long periods of time. That's world history, really. I mean, the population of the world wasn't always 7 billion. Nations didn't always exist. And I think that's maybe what makes people interested in history. It's about how we got to where we are today. Questions like, where did we come from, and who did we come from, are constantly on people's minds in today's day and age. Just look at how many DNA kits people are ordering from Ancestry.ca. Now, I've long been a fan of the Anglo-Saxon period, and have on many occasions thought about how I could somehow contribute to the vast amount of qualified scholarship that is out there on this fascinating subject. When I sat down and thought about starting this podcast, I considered a few different themes, but one concept that really stuck out to me, and that I hadn't really run into anywhere else, was the idea of telling the history of Anglo-Saxon England in the words of the people who actually lived that history, and who subsequently wrote it down for later generations to discover. So, I happened upon the title for this podcast, The Anglo-Saxons in Their Own Words. Now, I should include a bit of a disclaimer that I'm not an expert in this subject. I do have an undergraduate degree in history, and I've taken a few classes on it, Anglo-Saxons in the Medieval North, Medieval Europe, and Landscapes of British Civilization. The last one being a travel study where we toured the UK and visited important Roman and Anglo-Saxon historic sites. But a lot of what I know about this period has been accumulated from reading books and from listening to others outside of the classroom. That being said, I'll be doing my best to thoroughly research and explain the historical context of the things that I'll be sharing with you. Okay, that brings me to the next part of this introduction, the content we'll be covering in this podcast. Now, much of Anglo-Saxon history has been well documented and can be read in the many books which have been published on the subject. Historians through the ages have scrutinized almost every aspect of available primary sources, while simultaneously consulting archaeology to expand on the information we have in the texts that have been passed down to us. Historians have answered questions like, what sort of people lived in Anglo-Saxon England? How did they live? And what actually happened during the time they ruled the island? One thing about historians is they really like to get down to the nitty-gritty on a subject, so you shouldn't be surprised to find answers to intricate and obscure questions in a number of academic articles, like eating habits of Anglo-Saxon children between 620 and 655 AD. I just made that one up, but it's true. Historians do get pretty specific. While the sometimes boring details of history are important in telling the whole story, 
I've decided to take a bit of a different direction with this podcast. Instead of bombarding you with the timelines, new research, and minutia of Anglo-Saxon life, I'm going to read you the stories and the histories that the Anglo-Saxons themselves penned. While some background on this subject is definitely a bonus, it also won't be necessary if you're a first-timer when it comes to this period. If you just want to know more about the Anglo-Saxons, or if you are just looking to listen to a good story, this is the podcast for you. I'm going to do my best to provide background and additional details as we go along. In general, the first part of each episode will be reserved for the reading of a text, something from Bede's Ecclesiastical History, an excerpt from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, or work of Anglo-Saxon literature. And yes, we will be covering Beowulf. The second part of the episode will be devoted to breaking down what we just read, discussing what it meant to the Anglo-Saxons, and also what it means for us today. While we may talk a bit about what's fact and what's fiction, in general, I want to focus on the why of these stories. For example, if Bede writes a hagiography, which, for those of you who don't know, is just a fancy word for the biography of a saint, and he details numerous miracles performed by a saint, I don't think questions like, did this or did this not actually happen, will be something we'll focus too much on. Rather, I'd like to talk about why Bede would write about these events, and what he's trying to say to those of us reading his histories. Most importantly, I want us to try and hear these stories as if for the first time, and view them with fresh eyes, so to speak. History is a funny thing. In essence, the study of history has become a science. There are certain methods that historians use to ascertain what events have transpired. There are also stringent research protocols, and of course, as with all science, a thirst for new discoveries. But one thing I noticed a lot when I did my undergrad was that, perhaps due to this scientific approach, primary sources were often sidelined in some regards. True, though we often had to comb through primary sources for papers and assignments, there was rarely a moment in the classroom where their validity was not called into question. Whether it was the recollection of a Great War veteran, a refugee of the Second World War, or a 1,200-year-old manuscript from Europe, the question always remained, how much of what the author is saying can we trust? Of course, we were taught to think critically, to discern fact from fiction. However, I found that this sort of removed the mystery and charm from some of our oldest and most precious sources. I always wondered how our view of history might change if we just took our ancestors' word for it. Sure, it would be biased, and would there be inaccuracies? Certainly. But I think that tempered with a 21st century understanding of the past, to read or listen to the stories of the past without questioning their truthfulness all at once, can open our minds to new ideas, and also serve to enchant us with our history once again. After all, how many history buffs got their start on the story of King Arthur and his knights, or the stories of pirates daring exploits during the Age of Sail? They might not all be factual, but don't they hold value? Interestingly, I think that many of us would be quick to label the tales of King Arthur as fiction, but defend our family war stories as truth. Aren't the stories we pass down generation after generation true? Perhaps they are, perhaps not. But even if they aren't, I think they have something to tell us. History, after all, is his story. And this is why I believe primary sources are so important. We should never be quick to write off ancient histories as fiction, or oral accounts as misremembered facts. We have the benefit of hindsight, but at some point, for some reason, these histories were true for someone. Now, of course, as my great-grandfather would say, you can't believe everything you hear and only half of what you see. But in this podcast, I'm going to be challenging that notion just a bit. That's not to say that we will take everything the Anglo-Saxons have to tell us as gospel, but we will listen to them uncensored 
in their own words. For the most part, I'll only be pausing to reflect after we've heard all there is to hear. I will interject on occasion, but I'll try to do so with the intention of clarifying meaning and giving context, rather than critically analyzing the text. So who were the Anglo-Saxons? Well, they were a group, or groups really, of Germanic-speaking peoples who came to Britain around the 5th century AD. They consisted of Angles, Jutes, and Saxons, as well as some Frisians, who migrated to Britain from northwest Germany and the Dutch lowlands in the wake of the Roman evacuation of Britain. By the turn of the 5th century, Rome had occupied Britain for nearly four centuries, and the areas in which many Anglo-Saxons were to settle would have been in most cases thoroughly Romanized. Indeed, the people of Britain at this time, living in or near the major centres of Britannia, would have likely described themselves as Romans. Following the withdrawal of Rome's last British legion, however, in 410 AD, the Britons faced frequent bouts of barbarian raiding, and having no organised military to defend them, the abandoned Romano-British eventually turned to hiring mercenaries. Some of these mercenaries were Anglo-Saxon, and it's believed that as the Britons ran out of money to pay their protectors, relationships began to sour, and Anglo-Saxons began to occupy parts of Britain, which was rich in arable farmland. Though the concept of an Anglo-Saxon invasion has largely fallen out of favour, and it's generally agreed that the Anglo-Saxons migrated to Britain over a longer period of time, what remains true is that those Romano-British who could fled the former province for what was then known as Gaul, or modern-day France. Many of those who remained in Britain were forced west into what is now Devon, Cornwall, and Wales, as well as Cumbria and Scotland though Scotland had never been conquered by the Romans, so the population there was largely Celtic. Those who were left in the areas now dominated by the Anglo-Saxons would often become second-class citizens. Though the Anglo-Saxons developed a reputation for being fierce warriors, they were mostly farmers, who were more likely to beat their plowshares into swords should the need arise. They would eventually develop a distinct warrior class whose occupation was that of professional soldier, but again, the primary occupation of the Anglo-Saxon was typically that of farmer. Over time, the Anglo-Saxons would develop more complex societies with advanced systems of class, commerce, and trade. Additionally, though they were pagan when they first arrived in Britain with a belief system similar to that of Norse paganism, the chief god of the Anglo-Saxons was Woden, and it's from him that we get Woden's Day or Wednesday. By the mid-7th century, the majority of the island's population would become Christian. The various tribes that settled Britain would set up in different locations across the island, and this eventually resulted in a relatively stable system of independent kingdoms. The foremost among these would become known as the Heptarchy, or Seven Kingdoms. They were Kent, Wessex, Essex, Sussex, East Anglia, Mercia, and Northumbria. Kent very briefly dominated the landscape of Britain after the Anglo-Saxons' initial settlement, followed by East Anglia under King Raedwald, who is believed to be the king buried at Sutton Hoo. Northumbria also experienced its time as the preeminent Anglo-Saxon kingdom. However, much of the Anglo-Saxon age was dominated by Mercia, in what's been termed the Mercian Supremacy. Mercia's eventual decline led to the rise of Wessex under King Edbert and Kings Alfred, Edward, and Athelstan thereafter. Athelstan is attributed with unifying the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, and after a series of victories in battle, was the first Anglo-Saxon to style himself King of the English and Ruler of All Britain although just two years after his death, many of the gains he made were lost and had to be reconquered. In the late 8th century, the Anglo-Saxons were faced with their own invasion. Viking raids became commonplace in the 9th century, and Scandinavians eventually began settling permanently in Britain, engaging in long and drawn-out campaigns with their Anglo-Saxon counterparts. 
Scandinavian incursions eventually led to the establishment of the Dane Law in 886, a division of land between the Viking-controlled north and east and the Saxon-controlled southwest. The Dane Law effectively ended when Lady Ethelfled of Mercia and Edward the Elder of Wessex reconquered the five boroughs where the Scandinavians ruled in the early 10th century. This reconquest also paved the way for Athelstan's eventual takeover, which culminated in the 937 Battle of Brunnenborough. As later events would show, the Viking threat would never be fully eliminated, but by 947 the kings of Wessex had become the undisputed rulers of England, having subjugated the various other Anglo-Saxon and Scandinavian kingdoms to their rule. The English crown traces its origins all the way back to Alfred the Great and his ancestors, and is still styled as the Royal House of Wessex to this day. A brief period of peace settled on Anglo-Saxon England after 947, and though conflict would return, the Anglo-Saxons managed to hang on to their island for the most part. It wouldn't be until more than a century after King Eadred's victory in 947 that a major succession crisis would put the Anglo-Saxon world in peril. This would take place in the year 1066. Following the death of King Edward the Confessor, the island was invaded again, this time not by Vikings, but by Normans. The Norman conquest of 1066 was led by William the Conqueror, a French duke who held a claim to Edward's crown. The last Anglo-Saxon king, Harold Godwinson, was slain by William's army at the Battle of Hastings, and William claimed the English crown for himself. Though the Anglo-Saxons and their language would continue to influence society and culture, English was no longer the language of the ruling elite, as William would replace the Anglo-Saxon nobility with nobles loyal to him from across the Channel. For many, 1066 effectively marks the end of Anglo-Saxon England. Okay, I may have missed a few details there, but I just wanted to give you guys a quick rundown of who the Anglo-Saxons were, and give you a little context before we dive into hearing from them. I'll be going into much greater detail in future episodes as we dissect some of the sources and I'll be taking a look at some of the secondary literature as well. But for now, if you aren't very familiar with the Anglo-Saxons, I hope that gives you a pretty good introduction to some of the who's and what's we'll be covering in the podcast. If some of those names don't ring a bell, don't worry, you can learn as we go. Or you can do a few quick searches on Wikipedia to familiarize yourself with some of our characters before diving into the following episodes. I'll also be putting a list of sources I'm using for each episode in the description. And of course, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email me at theanglosaxonpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.